And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This is the fourth and the longest of the seven letters to the churches that were dictated by Jesus himself. He is writing these letters. He's dictating them to John, who's writing them down, and then we'll send them off. And it's following the same format as the other ones so far. It begins by addressing to the angel of the church, and then it lists the city. And in this case, this is Thuatira, or Thyatira is how I grew up saying that. Thyatira is the fourth city in a row here. And unlike the other cities, which were all in the same region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Thyatira was not a major city of any importance. Ephesus was very important. Pergamum was as well. Even Smyrna was a big port city. But Thyatira was not. Thyatira was, it was smaller. Uh, it was to the southeast of Pergamum. And as you follow these letters, we've got a map up there for you. Uh, we're going to be going in a clockwise circuit going through all of these, these cities. And Thyatira is to the southeast of Pergamum. It is inland a little bit. Not really known for anything historically, but it was a known commercial center, as most cities would have been and still are to this day, that it was known for its commerce, which is ironic or not ironic. It makes sense. In the book of Acts, we meet somebody from Thyatira, and she was a tradeswoman, which makes sense from what we know about the city. Acts 16, 14 when Paul arrives in Philippi, actually, one who heard us speak was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia was the first convert in the city of Philippi, but she was not from Philippi. She was from Thyatira, and she was a merchant of purple Thyatira manufactured textiles and other things and also manufactured its purple goods. The dye was difficult to get. It wasn't like today you could just go to Walmart and pick your favorite color. Uh, so purple was difficult to get. It was expensive. That's why purple is a regal color. Because if you were rich, you could afford a lot of purple. So hence Lydia who sells purple goods. And literally there just says a seller of purple. If you want that color, she's your gal. She's the one to talk to. And this again fits with what we know about the city. The social scene in Thyatira, as it was in many cities, was dominated by these trade guilds. Whatever business you were in, you had to join a guild. It was similar to a union, but it was, of course, different. Uh, they would regulate prices. They would regulate business practices. They would handling what we would call licensing today. But there was an additional element that made it difficult for Christians at this time. And that was these guilds would often be patronized by a certain god or goddess. And part of being a part of the guild was going to the temple and worshiping that god or goddess. All your meetings would be had there. Kind of like we see in the Bible in the temple in Jerusalem. Temples were not just like church. You would come for meetings. You would come for business. You would come for feasts. And this is what they would do. They would have their business, they would offer sacrifices to the gods, they would eat the sacrifices, which was communion, and very often there was sexual immorality that took place afterwards. That was, as for many of these temples, part of worship. 
If you believed in a fertility god or a fertility goddess, then having sexual congress with one of the so-called priests or priestesses in the temple was considered uh, doing the same with the god or goddess. And so there was all manner of perversion that was associated with these trade guilds, and it would become a point of persecution for many Christians in later years. Now, Jesus has addressed Thyatira, and then the next thing he always does is he describes himself looking back to the picture we saw of him in chapter 1. And he gives us three things about himself as he writes here. Number one, he calls himself the Son of God, which is one of John's favorite descriptions of Jesus was Son of God. Number two, eyes like a flame of fire. Whether they looked like fire or whether when he looked at you, it felt like you were getting burned. In either case, you get the the sense there. And number three, feet like burnished bronze. All of these descriptions are speaking of the deity of Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, when he had a vision of the, the man that spoke to him, he also had eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. And son of God, for us today, is a euphemism for all people. We're all sons and daughters of God. But at this time, to be a son of God meant to have the characteristics of God. It's like my son has the characteristics that I have, which are human characteristics. To be the son of God meant to be God. So it's emphasizing that Jesus is is God in this section, not a secret in the book of Revelation. But also, specifically, with the eyes like fire, it's emphasizing his insight, that he's able to see things and properly evaluate things, uh, unlike us, who sometimes can be deceived. And the feet like burnished bronze, I could list many scriptures that talk about Jesus crushing sin beneath his feet. So these are pictures of judgment that he's able to see properly to judge and he has the power to execute that judgment. And then he says, as always, I know your works, which depending on how your works are is either a good thing or a bad thing. And for them, they had a lot of good things going on in Thyatira. They had love, right? Ephesus had left their first love, but they hadn't. Their faith Right? They had kept the true faith. They weren't inviting false doctrines. Not all of them. Their service. Right, Remember before I said your, your latter works are, are decreasing. Go back and do the former things. Wasn't happening in Thyatira. And endurance. That endurance specifically in, in this context is endurance against suffering and persecution. They weren't letting themselves getting, get beat down by this persecution. Their works were increasing. This was a growing, thriving church. The kind of church you'd want to be a part of. They loved each other. They had true faith. They endured. They had a lot of great works going on. It's the kind of church that Jesus wanted. However, there was a rot festering at the heart of this church. And it seems from this passage that this was not all of them or even most of them. But there was a faction in this church that many of them probably would have chosen to ignore and just focus on the good things. But Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire and he can see what's really going on. And he has the bronze feet ready to crush it. And that's what he's going to do. And this needs to be a warning for us that even a thriving, successful, growing church can have serious issues in Jesus' eyes that need to be addressed. So as our church grows and as our church does good things, we never want to get to the place where we go, I don't want to deal with that because things are going so well and it's going to put a sour taste in everybody's mouth. 
Jesus is searching every church with his fiery eyes, and we've got to be able to do the same. So that's the commendation. But in the middle of this passage, he's going to correct them. So let's look at verse 20. And this is quite a passage here. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Remember, this would have been read out loud at the church. And they all would have known good and well who he was talking about. I've got a letter from John. Jesus Christ himself has given us a revelation. And Jesus said, I have this against you. That woman, that Jezebel woman in your church, and everybody would have shifted in their seat trying not to look at her. Jesus didn't pull any punches. He had something against them. They were tolerant. You tolerate a woman. Interesting that we find that to be the highest virtue. And what Jesus has against somebody is their tolerance. Of a woman he calls Jezebel. Ladies, if someone calls you Jezebel, is that a nice thing to be said of you? No. No, that is not a compliment to call somebody Jezebel. And it's also highly unlikely that this was this woman's real name. He says, you've got that woman. You could even maybe translate that, that Jezebel woman. That woman that reminds Jesus of Jezebel. And if you don't know your Bible so well, I'm going to teach you about who Jezebel was. This was Ahab's wife, the king of Israel. 1 Kings 16.31 says, As if it had been a light thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom in Israel. He was walking in the sins of Jeroboam, which meant Jeroboam had built golden calves again and said, let's worship the Lord through these images of golden calves. It was a way to keep the people from going back to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and the Bible says, as if that wasn't enough, what did he do? Wow, what could be worse than worshiping golden calves? He married Jezebel. Apparently, marrying Jezebel is worse than worshiping golden calves, according to the Bible. How about that? Her father was a man named Ethbaal, or Ethbaal, king of Sidon. Sidon was a Phoenician trade city, city to the north of Israel. And when she came to become the queen of Israel... She introduced Baal and Asherah worship into the land of Israel. And you say, well, Ahab was the king. Yeah, but the Bible makes abundantly clear. Jezebel was the one pushing this. And Ahab was a wimp and didn't stand up to her because he was just as wicked. But really, she was the one inciting all of this. This was the first time there was state-sponsored idolatry in Israel. This was her that did this. She persecuted the prophets. She drove them out of the land of Israel and tried to execute them all. She set up worship of Baal and Asherah, these false gods in the, in the nation. She helped her husband murder people to take their land. She was an intriguer. She had a daughter named Athaliah, who was also a piece of work, who married Je uh, Jehoshaphat's son in the land of Judah. And the two of them schemed together to wipe out the line of David and bring the na nations of Judah and Israel into the Sidonian fold. 1 Kings 21-25 makes it clear that Jezebel incited Ahab to evil. Ahab seems to be, if you read the story, this kind of reluctant pagan. Like he, He's always trying to have Jesus or have uh, the Lord and these other things too. 
but the prophets are having none of it. And that's he encountered Elijah and Micaiah and other faithful prophets. But when Ahab died, Jezebel was queen. And it was so bad that the Lord raised up a revolution against her. And when she was killed, she was thrown out of the window of her palace by her own servants, who apparently didn't like working for her very much. And in 2 Kings 9.35, it says the dogs rushed upon her and ate her, except for her head, her hands, and her feet. Because even the dogs didn't want to touch that. The things she'd been thinking, the places she'd been going, the things she'd been doing with those hands. Jezebel, not, not a nice name to give to your daughter. And here comes Jesus, sending a letter to his church in Thyatira. He says, I have a problem with you. Well, Jesus, Lord, what is it? You got that Jezebel woman in your church. And they go, is he talking about, and they you know, would have known her real name. She would have heard this too. Maybe she knew who Jesus was talking about. And I'm going to take a minute here. And break this down. This woman was causing trouble in the church in Thyatira. And there, there's several things that she was doing that Jesus rebukes here. And I'm going to lay them out because the things that were happening by this woman Jezebel are problems that we still deal with in the, the church today. And half throughout history, but uh, I've got five of them. I had five points last week. I'm not doing this on purpose. But if you look through what Jesus says about her, what was she doing that was so awful? That Jesus Christ would call her Jezebel. Well, you can see that she was seducing her Christ's servants to do wicked things, like Jezebel was inciting people to sin. What was wrong with what this Jezebel woman was doing? Five things. The first one is the most controversial. It's been getting kind of crowded in here anyway, so might as well just dive right in. The first issue with this woman Jezebel was female leadership in the church. Told you. She calls herself a prophetess, and she's teaching and seducing my servants. She was taking up a position of leadership and teaching and influence in this church and was leading these people away to sin. However, before we even get to what she was teaching them to do, we have to address the issue that she should not have had such a position of influence in the church in the first place. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Not in God's church. You say, well, why? And Paul says, well, because Adam was created first and then Eve. And also, Adam was not deceived by the serpent, but Eve was. So it goes all the way back to Genesis. He's not making a cultural statement here. What he's saying is, this is how God created it. There's another passage in 1 Corinthians where it says it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. The church is to be the institution in the world that upholds God's created order for male and female no matter what. The world can do whatever it wants. The church is to have male leadership and female submission. That is what the Bible teaches us. Like I said, not a popular point of view. But here's the problem, in our culture anyway. We have listened to the criticisms of people that are not part of the church and started to apply their solutions to God's house. Feminism is not a friend of the Bible. And I'm not just saying that as a political movement. There are entire schools of feminist theology that are seeking to dismantle not just the order of male and female, but the church itself as an institution. The Bible itself as a book of authority, because the Bible teaches that women are to be in submission to their husbands. And not only that, to dismantle the doctrine of the Trinity, 
Because if you believe that there can be Father, Son, and Holy Ghost equal one in substance and yet difference in the role they play, well, that might influence how you believe uh, men and women and people to handle themselves in the church and the congregation. So got to get rid of the Trinity too. They're not friends of ours. And what happens, I'll even hear Christians say things like, well, you know the church has oppressed women throughout generations. Have we? Have we? What do you mean by that? Because if you trace that back, you got that from some Christian who got that from some secular theologian, and you say, well, what is the oppression exactly? Well, they told women to submit to their husbands. And they said that only men should be teaching in the congregation. And they say that Eve sinned, and they've denied women's sexuality, and on and on and on. All things that the Bible teaches and that we are to affirm and believe. And anytime there's been any kind of abuse or problem of women in the church, those people have been in direct violation of what the Bible teaches. And it has been corrected. And I have certainly never been a part of a church or known anybody who I admire or has any kind of authority or, shall we say, influence in the church to speak of that advocates for such terrible things like abuse. But why do we keep using that word? Because it's in the air, because it's being pushed. So what do we end up with? We end up with pastors that teach weak on this issue. I read a Christian book. Well, he's a Christian. I don't want to question his faith. But he said, I have never heard of an issue in a marriage where submission was a problem with the wife, where controlling and domination was also a problem with the husband. He's like, there's no such thing, basically, as a woman that is not properly obeying the command to submit in the scripture. I've heard so many studies slapping guys back and forth about how you've got to treat your wives better. And then the wives, it seems very often, don't get the same treatment because this is cultural. It's not biblical because the Bible, like I said, I read those passages from Paul and some of y'all went, "Mm." Paul Paul was not worried about what you were going to think about him. You get people that say all these weak things about, well, you know, the Bible says that men are supposed to teach, but, I mean, really, I mean, the women are the smart ones and the spiritual ones, and they should be teaching. What is that weak sauce? What that is, is it's an accommodation to a culture that doesn't like what the Bible teaches about something, so you try to make it sound as flimsy as possible to accommodate people. A lot of these people that have come into the church as female pastors or female Bible teachers, when you find out about them, where they studied and where they were trained was at these same secular universities where they were taught these same activist theologies that you see in play in other domains. And they say the way we're going to dismantle the patriarchy is join the church and preach. And we'll preach against this stuff. And we'll go to the the synods and we'll vote against this stuff. And we'll parliament our way to removing these things. It's not right. It's not right. Why do we care the world's accusations? The world, does the world know what they're doing when it comes to gender roles? Well, we've got to correct that trans thing. We've got to correct the homosexual thing. You're not going to correct that if you're not going to be willing to go back to the beginning and say, this is how God made it. God created Adam first and then his wife to be his helper. The Bible says in Ephesians, a husband is to lead his wife and love his wife, and a wife is to lovingly submit to her husband as the church is in submission to Christ. And until we're willing to correct that at a basic level, we're going to struggle. Women are permitted to encourage in the church, pray in the church, exhort, prophesy in the church, serve in the church. But when it comes to matters of leadership and teaching, the answer is no. It doesn't matter what the world says. And the funny thing is, maybe some of y'all don't realize that a lot of these younger generations are really kind of getting sick of that whole thing. And they're ready to spit it up. 
And when that happens, if the church is standing over here on the side of these people that hate the Lord's teaching about these things, we're going to be in trouble. So I realize that's not popular, but it needs to be said. This woman should never have been given the opportunity to have such a position of influence in the church in the first place. Likewise, we need to make sure we are cultivating strong male leadership in the home and in the church. And I think we are doing that here. And the rest of you, those of you who are wives and daughters and mothers, you need to be instructing one another that what God has given to you is not bad. It's not against you. It's something to delight and rejoice in. And don't let people speak poorly about the way that God has made you and what he has assigned to you. Anyway, that's the first one. Second one, the second thing this woman was doing that we still deal with was sexual immorality. Not only was this woman teaching, she was seducing the people that came to hear her teach to sexual immorality. Now, there is a question here. Some people say, is this symbolic? Meaning the Bible very often compares idolatry to adultery. So is this just talking about idolatry? It says seduce and it uses the word pornea, which is where we get the word pornography from. This woman was not only teaching in the church, which she'd not have been doing, after it was over, people would come up and say, hey, Jezebel, probably didn't call her that, but hey, that was, that was a great study today. She would begin the process of seducing these men. And it was known, it was in the church that this was going on. And this is the second thing, sexual immorality. It is a key marker of false teachers. When there is false teaching in the church, you can bet your bottom dollar that there is some aberrant sexual thing going on. It's unfortunate, but that is the case. There are even some that make it their point of emphasis in the church to get us talking about more sexuality and to bring in these things and soften the church's positions on these things or to mock the church's position on sexuality. When you know what Ephesians 5.3 tells us? It is shameful even to speak of the things that the world does in secret. So I'm not really a big fan of those that want to constantly be bringing to light all of these aberrant practices that the world engages in. We're to delight in purity, are we not? And I'll tell you, I am getting more and more, more aggravated with these Christian comedians that want to make fun of the way that Christians dress, the way that they engage in relationships with each other, the way that they go online, because like, oh, we're so lame, it's kind of funny. All right, but the rest of the world is having serious trouble. We're supposed to be pure. We're supposed to remain virgins until we're married. We're supposed to be faithful after we're married. We're not to try to become objects of lust for one another. So it bothers me when they say, oh yeah, Christian girls, you know, they always want to make sure everything's covered. Well, good. And they'll say, oh yeah, I agree with that, but we can still make fun of it. I don't know anymore. I'm getting to the point where I don't like that because you erode things. You erode it in the church. We're not even supposed to talk about some of this stuff. Some of it we have to because it's so in your face. I mean, how many teachers are there today that we trusted and loved and read their books and now they're coming out and they're saying, we've got to accept trans people and we've got to allow homosexuality and promote it in the church because didn't Jesus tell us to love one another? Maybe we shouldn't have trusted such people in the first place. We shouldn't be fans of Christian celebrities. You trust your pastor, trust your elders, trust your home fellowship group. That's who you listen to. And here's another problem. When it comes to sexual morality, especially with false teachers, there are those that will give a big pass to powerful teachers when it comes to matters of sexuality. There are many churches that have wonderful, dynamic worship music, and yet it is well known in the rest of the church that the worship leader is a homosexual. Maybe we don't want to talk about it, but it's well known. 
And if you want to bring it up, they say, yeah, but just the way he brings the Holy Spirit. I don't want that, man. I'd rather it be boring and the worship be pure. Or pastors that are just strong, dynamic speakers, or especially that have gifts of the Spirit of healing and miracles. And we find out that they're doing what this Jezebel woman was doing. When it's over and a woman comes up and says, thank you for doing that, that man takes advantage of that in order to gratify himself sexually. We don't do that. We stand strong. We're to be pure, like Christ was pure, to value these things, to value celibacy, to value virginity. The world is not doing it right. Let's not try to be like them. She was doing this in the church. So not only was she usurping a place that was not hers, she was using it to gratify herself sexually. And number three, the third thing that was going on, she was trying to get them to eat food sacrificed to idols. We talked about this last time, cultural compromise. She was trying to get them to compromise their religion to engage with the culture. And in their case, it was those forbidden idolatrous meals that happened at the trade guilds. And the thing is, when you're having a pushback on the culture, it is very easy for somebody to come in and tell you you don't have to. So the pastor of the church in Thyatira was probably telling them, no, guys, you can't go to these things and worship the gods and ask for their favor upon your business. Trust the Lord Jesus to take care of you. And it's, hey, I'm not saying it's easy to push back, but they had to. And so how are we going to do this? The guild won't let us function anymore, right? They're going to shut us down. We're going to miss out on contracts. And here comes Jezebel, and she stands up and says, guys, who cares? Just do it. Je Jesus knows. Oh, they're not real gods anyway, so whatever. And you know what? We're too buttoned up on our sexuality anyway, so go ahead and, and commit immorality with those priestesses at the temple. But in our case, it can be anything that seeks to import the world's ideas and the world's priorities. There's another thing that you hear a lot. Christians spend too much time trying to separate themselves from the world and be different and be distinct. We're supposed to. 2 Corinthians 6, 17, come out from among them and be separate for what fellowship has light with darkness. I have people, every now and then we get letters to the church. I don't usually read them, but sometimes I will. And uh, I have one guy sent us a letter or an email one time saying we shouldn't use the word lost anymore to describe those that are not believers. Because the implication is that they don't know where they're going and they don't know what they're doing. Uh, yeah, that's exactly, it's a great description actually. You're lost. You're blind. You're dead. We are alive. We can see, oh, you think your God's better than mine? Yes. <laughs> yes, we do, because our God is real, and your God is not. At the very least, it's a usurping demon trying to steal your, your heart away from you. But, you know, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, in the last days, people are not going to sit still for sound teaching, but instead, they're going to heap up for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Say, I want somebody who's going to teach what I want to hear. And then it'll be said they have itching ears. Like, just tell me what I want to hear. And you know what, guys? You can go online. You can find a podcast. You can find a denomination. You can find a blog. You can find a group that will tell you exactly what you want to hear. But that's not what we are to do. We're to be counter-cultural as Christians. First of all, we're counter that, that postmodern, nothing matters, nothing means anything culture. Right? There's all sorts of popular ways you see that, but it goes all the way back to words don't mean anything. And there's no such a thing as truth. There's only perspective on truth. That's not a biblical way of looking at things. God gave us a book. I think he understands that we can use words properly. But also, 
And here's where some of y'all have been happy with what I've said so far, and now I'm going to bug you. We're also supposed to be counter-Western culture. And I know that we're living in days, and I, I am in more in sympathy with these people than the other ones, where we're trying to stand up for Western civilization. Okay, but Jesus Christ has an awful lot of problems with Western civilization, Christians. We want to like, we'll go back to the Greeks and the Romans. The pagans? The idolaters? The pederasts? We want to be imitating these guys? Oh, back to the Enlightenment. Yes, the Enlightenment, when atheism first gained its first mainstream appeal in Western civilization, that up to that point had been specifically Christian. There's so many things that have, are part of our culture, our civilization, that might be better than this over here, doesn't mean they're good. I don't care to stand up and be in this pulpit a champion of any civilization other than the kingdom of heaven. We have got to be able to stand against. And sometimes it's okay to stand for something as long as you reserve the right in how you do it to contest some of these things. Right now, folks on the right wing, they want the church. They want the Bible. They want Jesus because it's a cultural symbol for them. Well, when you start reading some of the things Jesus has to say, all of a sudden it's not going to seem so appealing anymore. So watch out for that. Don't hitch your wagon to anything other than our Lord Jesus. Number four, this is, I'm going to skip down here a little bit in verse 24. It says that what she was teaching, some of them called the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan. So our fourth thing here is esoteric knowledge. False teachers love to spread deep things, secret things. I'm not talking about depth of knowledge of Jesus. I'm talking about like book 67 that you don't know about. Third Corinthians, man, that's where the real magic is. It's esoteric and even demonic knowledge, sometimes in the name of truth. You say, yes, we've got the Bible, but there's this other tradition over here that is not scriptural and never was scripture, but it's got some interesting ideas. And you start to use that as your framework to evaluate the Bible. People don't want to go back to the Gnostic Gospels. What did the Gospel of Thomas say? What does the, uh, the Acts of Peter and Paul say? I don't care. It's not Bible. And it never was Bible. You know, such people, there are folks in the, in the church and in the world who think they're smarter than everybody else. And so the thought of coming to the same book as everybody and believing the same doctrine as everybody really sticks in their craw. So I've got to find something deeper. And that's, that's a problem, my friends. You don't need extra knowledge. There are a lot of, uh, of course, like cults and aberrant groups that'll do this, you know, groups where you join the club and the longer you're in it, the more you realize that we're bowing down to the Lord of light and you've got to do a blood sacrifice to stay part of it. And like that, okay, that's wicked, you guys. That's not good. I've, I've mentioned several times that you see these, I'm seeing an increase in satanic and demonic things popping up, witchcraft, idolatry. And I don't like to call a lot of these things out specifically, first of all, because it's not necessary for you, but I'm just, I'm just seeing it. People that have this fascination with paganism, this fascination with idols, this disregard for the scripture, magic, right? Conspiracies, what's really going on behind these things? There could even be Christian doctrine, 
that come in and maybe they're, they're involved in a ministry that does healing and, and casting out of demons. Biblical things. But it seems to spend way more time telling you about the hierarchy and the inner workings of the devil than they do about Jesus. Well, we need to know these things. No, you don't. Jesus is stronger. <laughs> James 4 says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Michael didn't even want to talk to Satan. He just said, Lord, will rebuke you. If you ever find yourself in contact with someone who is demonized or something that is satanic, get Jesus, get your big brother to come beat him up. So well, I don't know if I'm strong enough. You're not, but he is. You don't need to know all these extra secret things. And I'll tell you, I've been to seminary and I'm ordained. There is no secret thing that nobody else knows about. There's no, what was that, what was that movie? Or what was that book? The Da Vinci Code. Like the more you learn about the Christian faith, you get taken down into the catacombs, and this is the real Bible, right? These are the real things. We really know, you know, who Jesus' children were. There is none of that. It's all made up. It's TV. So what you have in your lap is enough, and I think it's plenty to keep you busy, don't you think? But she was bringing in these secret, deep things of Satan. We've got to know who Satan is so that we can defeat him. I don't even know who Satan is. I didn't even know who Jesus is. And then nothing can stand against me. And the fifth thing here, which I think you can see, is she had a cult of personality. So not only was she usurping a place in the church she should not have had, and using it to commit sexual immorality, not only was she pushing compromise with the culture and introducing weird esoteric knowledge, she just had this cult of personality. How do I know that? Because Jesus didn't call out the group. He called out her. She was the problem. Jezebel was the problem. She had a following. And there are people that love to do this. They love to push their way into churches so that they can gain a following. They can gain a hearing for their weird ideas. We've had a few of those people try to wriggle in here. It's never happened because we've got a solid foundation here. And also, this isn't my first rodeo. I worked at a very large church and saw this all the time. But people say, oh, look, it's a small church. They want the church to grow. So they're not going to kick me out like that other church did down the road and the one before that and the one before that. But I can come here and I can air my theories and I'll be really charismatic and really friendly and get a lot of people around me. And like you can see this, like the, he'll be standing over there and there's like a group of adoring fans watching him after the service is over. Or people say this, oh, it's a young pastor. I can, I can bring him along and show him what's right. I've had that happen to me a few times or tried to. And, you know, I'm the wrong person to try that with, I guess. But I really don't like it when people try to do things like that, even when they mean well. But listen, God has given us leaders in the church. He's ordained pastors and evangelists and elders and teachers and deacons and deaconesses. There are so many great examples in the church. I don't know why we very often fall for these, these weird celebrity personalities. Sometimes just in, in one church. One guy walks in, and you know, this guy has serious problems with, I don't know, pick your issue. Serious problems with the Trinity, let's say. And anytime the pastor starts talking about it, he wants to go afterwards and kind of undercut everything he said. So now the pastor starts avoiding those issues. And now this guy's voice becomes dominant. And now it's too late to get rid of it because everybody would be ashamed and embarrassed. Don't let that happen. Titus 2.15, he tells Titus, Teach these things and let no one disregard you. So you can pray for me as a pastor that as we grow and as more people come into this church that I will have the strength of character and the strength of spirit to stiff arm that kind of thing. 
When someone, we actually had somebody say this one time. They said, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to this church and I teach a study there, but I really love to come and teach it here. And you know, I've got a lot of people that would follow me and this church would grow really fast. I'm like, yeah, no, no, thank you. What I said was there are a lot of other people in line ahead of you, so I'm not about to start a new study. Never saw them again. Took their friends with them that they had invited. God has given us leaders. And we have standards of leadership. Read Timothy and Titus, or just read the descriptions of Jesus. Those are the kind of leaders you look for. Humble leaders, faithful leaders, proven leaders. What are their families like? Do they know how to even lead their own family, their own wife, their own kids? I can throw one more thing in here. Don't, don't fall for the celebrity pastor, the celebrity worship leader, the celebrity Bible teacher. And, and listen, I love to read more than any of you. I read a lot of books, but you get these people that they write great books or they preach great messages. And what happens is it steals the church's love away from their local congregation and puts it with somebody they're never going to meet and is never going to meet them. And that makes it very hard for pastors and worship leaders and small group leaders to function because you're constantly getting this guy thrown in your face. You know, benefit from those things, but make sure your love stays where God has placed you. So this was Jezebel. She was doing all these things. She was disrupting God's created order of male and female. She was sexually immoral and seducing other people. She was telling them it's okay to compromise with the world and be just like them. She had all kinds of deep things of Satan that she was bringing in. And she just had this cult of personality to where Jesus writes to the angel of the church, which perhaps refers to the pastor, but he's got to address this woman that they were tolerating. Jezebel. Like Ahab, she was inciting the church. If you look over in Revelation 17, you can flip there if you want. It seems that this description of the harlot of Babylon, that Jesus takes a lot of the descriptions of this harlot and applies them to Jezebel. Let's just read them together. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. I think you can maybe see how a lot of the descriptions of these two women are the same. And if that is the case, what Jesus is saying is the way this woman in your church is functioning is how the idolatrous system of the Antichrist is going to function over all the world. You've got that problem in miniature in your church right now, and you're tolerating it. That was not good. It's remarkable to me how modern Jezebel seems. But we are not to be tolerant of such people in the church. You're being judgmental. Well, maybe, but that's not going to happen here. I will also say, and I wish I had more time to dive into this. We're going to have to pick a week where we do it. But many people see the seven churches as symbolic of ages of the church. The seven ages of church history leading up to the return of Christ. And those who do see the church in Thyatira as a symbolic reference to the idolatrous cult of Mary that grew up in the church 
during the Middle Ages. And when the name of Jesus began to be minimized and the name of Mary began to be exalted and they were lighting candles and saying prayers to Jesus' mother who functioned like, a, functioned like an idol in the church and re- continues to. And I think there may be something to that idea. At the very least, it should have given the church a clue that we're not into that kind of thing. But we will return to that idea. Let's move on to verse 21. That's what Jezebel was doing. Verse 21, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Here's how Jesus plans to deal with this situation. First thing he says is, I'm showing her mercy. I'm giving her time to repent. You ever wonder, Lord, why are you not dealing with this person? Why are you not dealing with this group? Because I'm giving them time to repent, to get it right. Just because Jesus has not dealt with your sin does not mean he's okay with it. Romans 2 Paul wrote, do you presume on the riches of kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Just because God has not done anything to stop it does not mean he approves of it. How do I know what God approves of then? Check his word. Sexual morality is a no-go, right? Female leadership in the church is a no-go. Esoteric knowledge, the deep things of Satan is a big no-go. There are some of you today who are being given space to repent. And what's written next is for you. You've allowed sin to come into your life. And you think, well, God hasn't done anything about it, so I must be okay with it. If God really didn't want me to be having this affair, he would have exposed me by now. God loves you too much. He doesn't want to blow up your life. He wants you to willingly and voluntarily repent and get back. But if you don't, what does he say? I'm going to throw her into a sick bed. Literally there, the word just says bed. And I think rather than referring to sickness, Jesus is making a play on words on this woman's sexual morality. You like going to bed so much? I'm going to throw you into a bed that you're not going to get up from. And the whole family, the adulterers and her children as well. Perhaps these were literal children that she had had by sexual immorality in the church. Or maybe these are her disciples. But in any case, anybody who's associated with this woman, Jesus says, you've got this faction in the church, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to put a stop to it. I'm not going to allow this to continue. There was to be real retribution, perhaps even literally striking these people dead. Does that happen in the church? Yes, it does. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. The Corinthians were getting drunk and excluding poor people from the communion meal. And Paul said, that's why some of y'all are getting sick and some of you are dying. Jesus was striking the church. He even says, I'll send them into great tribulation. I believe that's a reference to the day of the Lord that we're going to read about here in Revelation. The great tribulation. It's a promise of hell. He says, I'm not going to let you pretend that you belong to me and that you're one of my disciples and you're doing this stuff. You're going to go to hell with just everybody else. Oh, but Lord, I had so many followers. So many people joined the church because of me. You're going to say, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Depart from me. Jesus will not tolerate sin for long, but he will wipe it out of his church. When it continues for a long time, well, Jesus must be okay. He must have changed his mind on homosexuality. 
No, but the Lord loves the American church so much for all the good that has been done, all the missions, all the doctrine, all of the revivals. He's like, I'm going to give you time to repent. But the day will come where I'm going to strike my church and cleanse it. I ought to strike a little fear into your heart. The end of verse 23. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. You know, sometimes the Lord removes the lampstand. Like you talk about with Ephesus, you left your first love, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You're not going to be a church no more. But sometimes, he just cleans it. And that's what seems to be happening at Thyatira. It wasn't everybody. There was a faction in the church. He said, I'm going to come through and clean house. Which is terrible news for some. And good news for others. This should be good news for you because the eyes of Jesus are like a flame of fire. His feet are like bronze. He cannot tolerate iniquity, but he is able to see who has and has not sinned. So you see everything going on in the capital C church, and you say, I can't, why am I associated with this people? Jesus can sort it out. He'll bring in the net at the end of time and sort out the good and the bad fish. He's going to harvest the wheat and the tares together and separate them at the last day. Your works will be repaid. Faithfulness will be repaid, and so will unfaithfulness. As a believer, you will be proportionately rewarded for the things you've done in heaven, or your works will be judged as in your works were evidence that you lacked saving faith in the first place. Make no mistake about that. John the Baptist said of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Find it interesting that the harshest preachers in the New Testament were John the Baptist, James, Jude, and Jesus. That family, <laughs> that, that family, the cousin, the brothers, our Lord Jesus, they're the ones that spoke strongest about sin and repentance. I take comfort in the fact that God will not be mocked, but he will clear out his church. I am blessed and commissioned to live in a day when sin is running rampant in the church in my country. Not in this congregation, but it's everywhere and it's terrible. And it's top down and it's bottom up. And I pray for revival, but do you know how revival starts? Revival doesn't start with miracles and mass conversions. It starts with a horror over sin. Read through church history. The revivals that happen always begin with a long, extended period of weeping and groaning and crying out to the Lord. That's what has to happen first. And then what happens is an awareness of the magnitude of God's glory and his forgiveness. And then and only then does the the thing begin to pop as we think about it. But you can't have one without the other. You can't say, Lord, send revival. We want to see miracles without saying, Lord, send revival. We've got to repent of our sin. And those of you today who have tolerated sins like the ones we described in your own life, maybe through some online influences that you've found. Yeah, Tyler's great, but this guy, man, he's got some interesting things to say. That's the fire. That's the stuff that it feels edgy. I never want to be edgy in God's church, man. I'm going to be right in the center of what the Lord says, and that's plenty edgy for me. You've got to repent. You've got to return to the simple purity of the gospel. And the good news is in Thyatira, there were those that got that. Just like there are those, millions of those in our American church today that also get the simple gospel. I think a lot of us are here today. What does Jesus have to say to them? Verse 24. 
But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I shudder just to read that, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. How wonderful is the Lord and his fiery gaze because he's able to sort out who is and is not falling under the sway of these sins. You are never going to be accidentally caught up in the judgment of sinners in God's church if you are faithful. That's one reason among many we believe in the rapture of the church. But that's a side issue for today. It seems in this church that Jezebel's group was a minority. It was tolerated, which should not have been tolerated, but it was regretted. They knew that it was messed up. They knew that it was wrong. They knew that at that home fellowship, there's some nasty things going on. But Jesus also understood. Like it says in the Psalms, he knows our frame. He knows that a strong personality that is preaching sex and compromise and magical wisdom is difficult for people to resist. And sometimes you don't know how to handle it in the church, especially when the person claims to be a Christian. He's like, I get that. He doesn't rebuke them sharply. Should they have dealt with this woman? Yeah, they totally should have. But Jesus does not come to the faithful ones in the church and rebuke them. Don't we do that sometimes? There's big sin in the church and we don't rebuke the sinners, we rebuke the ones that are doing it right. Preaching to the choir, we call it. He just encourages them to hold on. Jesus says, I do not lay on you any other burden. Jesus is not a reactionary. Jesus does not see somebody doing it wrong and so then make a bunch of extra rules for those who are doing it right. Didn't you hate that in school? The one kid that couldn't shut up and so now the rest of us aren't allowed to have recess? Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, they're doing it wrong. I'm not putting anything extra on you. I'm not going to make you tighten up your liberties. I'm not going to make you be more rigid in your religion. Oh, they're exuberant and excessive. So I'm not going to tell you you can't celebrate in my church. Oh, these people go crazy with healing and the gift of tongues. I'm not going to tell you over here that you can't have those things properly. Jesus is not a reactionary. He knows, and nor should we be. Sometimes you see somebody over here doing it wrong, and you don't want it to look like you're with them, so you change what you're doing. Don't let them dictate your religion, man. Come on. Well, avoid every appearance of evil. Appearance to who? To our Lord Jesus. He knows what's up. He knows what's true. We're groaning. We're with him on these things. Romans 8, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. We're with you, Jesus. We hear these things. We go, oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Don't let this continue, Lord Jesus. He sees that. And he says, you just hold on, man. I'm going to take care of you. There is a danger to completely shape your faith around the errors of somebody else. Rather than building your Christianity around the gospel and the word, you build it by setting up barricades against the people that are doing it wrong. And now your entire prayer life and your entire worship life and your entire Bible study is defined by a heretic. You might be on the right side, but it's the same shape. Why do we do that? We shouldn't. There are some people who hate false teaching more than they love Jesus. And that's a terrible shame. 
There are some that they love harsh preaching like I'm giving today. You give it to them, Tyler. You tell them. But then the minute we start talking about Jesus and the love he has for us and how he accepts us, okay, well, I guess change the channel now. <laughs> I've been that guy before. Somebody wants to talk about grace. I'm like, oh, grace, okay, I've heard this one a million times. But somebody wants to talk about how we've got to rebuke this false teaching. I'm like, okay, I'm taking notes on this one. I'm ready to go. Don't do that. We don't have to change everything because somebody gets it wrong. Let them be wrong. Is that happening in your church? Well, no, but it's happening. Well, then just don't take, make such a big deal out of it. Many people, Tyler, you know what's going on in Portland and Seattle and New York? I do. I also don't live there. So I'm not going to make as big a deal out of it as I would if I lived there. I said this during the pandemic a lot and people got frustrated with me. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on, but it ain't happening in your backyard. So just take it down a notch. You're not taking it seriously. No, I'm taking the grace of the Lord seriously. I'm taking the joy of the Lord seriously. And when those things show up, I will handle them and deal with them. And I will talk about them when it's appropriate, but I'm not going to completely adjust my ministry because somebody's doing it wrong. You may not know how to handle every error, Christian, but can you just keep going with Jesus? You don't need to know the deep things of Satan to fight Satan. You need to know the deep things of Jesus. And then no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Trust that Jesus can sort out the good and the bad fish. And you just concern yourself with being a good fish. Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end. You got to finish. It's important. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Man, the sharpness of the rebuke is matched by the glory of the promise for the faithful ones. To those who finish the race, he will give authority over the nations. Not Jesus, the Christians that finish the race well. Authority over the nations. Second Timothy, it says, if we endure we will reign with him. Romans 8, 17 says we are co-heirs with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 3 says we will judge angels. Revelation 20, verse 4 says that those that came alive in the resurrection ruled and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. During the millennium, Satan will be bound and righteousness will be harshly enforced with a rod of iron. It's often been said, if you had a perfect king, a dictatorship would be great, but we don't, so we need to have these other forms. I agree, but guess what? In the millennium, you're going to have your perfect king, and he's never going to get it wrong, so his righteousness will be enforced by you. That's pretty cool. You're going to be a king or a queen to reign with Christ on the earth. And then he says, I'll give you the morning star. One of Satan's names is Lucifer, which means light bearer. It comes from Isaiah 14, 12, where it said, Oh, how you have fallen, O son of the morning. Lucifer was the Greek god of bringing the morning, right? Light bringer, right? The day star, the dawn. But you know, Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, Jesus says, I am the true and morning star. They were into the deep things of Satan. We're going to learn about the Lord of the morning. And Jesus is like, bro, I'm the Lord of the morning. You don't need to learn his stuff. You really want to understand the light and the truth and have power and you come to me. Don't go to them. Don't go to her. 
And verse 29, as he always ends, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These words are not just for Thyatira, it's for every church in all of history. Guys, there are always false teachers trying to creep into the church and bring the ideas and wisdom of the world. Even the things of Satan. Be on the lookout for them. Somebody who has a, a even if they say they're a Christian, they got all these interesting ideas and none of it is Bible, you can politely decline. Well, there's, they got some good things to say. Yeah, but have you, when's the last time you finished reading your Bible? You got plenty to keep you busy without learning the world's ideas. I finally figured out what's wrong with me. I finally figured out what's wrong with society. I finally figured out how to fix it. If you didn't open up your Bible and find it there, just let it go. Just let it go. Temptations of Thyatira are those that we face. And maybe some of you have imbibed some of those sins today. In which case, as Jesus said, it is time to repent. Even if Jezebel in this story herself were to repent, we would see her one day glorious and crowned reigning with Christ. Nobody is beyond the grace of our Lord Jesus. Certainly not you. You're not that important. The Lord is going to clear out his church soon and very soon. But you don't have to wait for a revival, guys. Today can be your Pentecost, your Asbury revival, your Jesus movement. It can happen today by faith. Simply turn away from the lies. Turn away from the sins. Lay it all out before Jesus and you'll be forgiven. And you will rule and reign with Christ. Your destiny is to reign as royalty with the morning star on your brow. And that's Jesus Christ, our one true king. You don't need anybody else. 